God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just find so much life in it. Lord, it encourages us and nourishes us. And Lord, it's also very, very powerful. Lord, it is strong. It's strong enough to uh, tear down walls in our hearts. Lord, walls of pride and um, Lord, self-sufficiency, walls of lies, Lord, things that we're believing about ourselves, about you that aren't true. Um, Lord, we thank you that we can rely upon it. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would make your word now clear, Lord, as we finish this sermon series. So God, would you guide me, give me the words to say, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in our final uh, week in this sermon series on biblical manhood and womanhood, and we have, uh, we've tackled some important and weighty topics along the way, haven't we? We've looked at the image of God, we've looked at uh, gender identity, we've looked at the dangers of gender fluidity and gender role interchangeability, we've looked at what it means to be a biblical man and a biblical woman, try to apply that to, to singleness and even in the context of marriage. We've looked at the spectrum of biblical complementarianism, and we've even touched on the purpose of marriage. Last week, we looked at the specific role of a man uh, within the context of marriage, and so today, we're going to close out by talking about the specific role of a woman in the context of marriage. Now, in preparing for the sermon today, I had so many of you, uh, so many people on staff just say, hey, you know, we're, we're praying for you. Um, you know, one guy put his arm around me and said, you've got this. Like, this is, you know, we're praying for you. And I'm like, man, did someone die in my family? I just didn't know it. Like, just the, the seriousness and just, uh, I appreciate the prayers. You know, always praying for your pastor is a good thing. Um, but, you know, th- this is a topic, obviously, I don't have any practical experience with, right? Being a woman, being a wife. But you know, I'm thankful that the Word of God's not silent on this topic, right? The Word of God does not lose any authority just because the preacher doesn't have any practical experience of the topic at hand. Um, and at the same time, ladies, I thank you in advance for the grace and for your patience and understanding as we kind of travel uh, through this topic um, together this morning. Well, last week I set up the role of the husband by saying that we have to understand the purpose of marriage if we are going to understand the biblical role uh, of a husband and a wife. Uh, last week, we talked about that the purpose of marriage is not primarily to make you happy. It's not primarily uh, for you to make babies or for you to make memories together, or for you to kind of do things the rest of your life. But the purpose of marriage, and we kind of looked at this definition, that marriage exists as God's sacred workshop to transform you into the image of Jesus as you display the beauty of the gospel for his glory. All right, that is the, the purpose of marriage. And, and if you don't like follow God's agenda for your marriage, what, what that's going to do for the husband and the wife is you're going to resist the biblical role that God has for you. Like there's gonna be this wall that goes up in your heart uh, uh, and, and you're gonna say, no, my role's not to submit. My role's not to sacrificially lead. My role is this over here and you're going to kind of make up whatever role you believe you should have based on whatever purpose of marriage you think uh, exists. In other words, I want to encourage you to think about the purpose of marriage like the center of your marriage. And whatever goes in the center, that shapes and determines the role that you think you should have. 
And so if you don't believe that the purpose of marriage is to transform you, for you to display the gospel, let's say that you think the purpose of marriage is to make you happy. Okay, if you think that's what's in the middle, then that's going to shape the role for you to have in marriage that would, you're going to do whatever kind of makes you happy. And so we, we have to understand that the purpose of marriage is, is what we find in Scripture or else you're going to resist the role that God has laid out for you in your marriage. just want to say on the, on the forefront of this sermon, and, and just to encourage you today, your spouse is not your enemy. Okay? Your spouse is not just this person that you do life with either. It's not just this person that you do make memories with, but to view your spouse as this gift from God, whom God will use as really the primary tool to transform you and make you look more like Jesus. Like that's the way to view kind of your spouse. And we've got to get that before we dive into the specifics. Last week, I also noted that when you think about biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, a lot of people, especially in the culture around us, they don't believe that there are any differences, right? And yet if you do believe there are differences, you may not be sure about what those differences are. Like here's the box. We looked at this last week for biblical manhood. Here's the box for biblical womanhood. They're different, right? But we're not really sure what goes in those boxes outside of body parts, right? And so last week, it just kind of put some things about biblical manhood within the context of marriage. And this morning, I want to use that same image to kind of put some things in the box of biblical womanhood in the context of marriage, Okay, so let's jump in. Let's look, first of all, at the foundation for the role of the wife, something that I'm going to call a helper. Okay, this is like the foundation of the box. Like last week, we looked at the foundation for the, the role of the husband was, to, uh, was about headship, all right? For the wife, it is helper. Now, you might be wondering, why start with helper? Well, this is, I think, where God starts in Genesis 1 and 2 as he's creating woman he sets out the purpose for why he created her. In Genesis 2, 18 and 20, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. All right, so we've looked at this. The first you know, couple of days of creation, God's creating different things. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. After each day, he's saying, this is good, that is good, this is good, that is good. He gets to Adam being alone. And he says, this is not good, right? And we, we get that on a very practical level. It's not good for man to be alone. And so how does God solve this problem? Well, he makes woman, he wants someone here to be similar but different than man in order to be a helper fit for him. Now, what does it mean to be a helper? All right, I'm sure for some of us, we think about that word and we automatically think they're inferior to someone else, right? We might think that the woman is less than man. We, we tend to think, oh, daddy's a little helper, you know? But that's not really what helper means throughout the Old Testament. In fact, this Hebrew word for helper is used over 19 different times throughout the Old Testament, and 16 of the 19 occurrences refer to God himself, that God takes on this role of helper as it relates to humanity. And so one thing that we can conclude is that helper cannot mean 
uh, to be inferior to man. That if God is this helper and he's being portrayed as that throughout the Old Testament, I would say just the opposite is true, right? That this is a glorious role for the woman, one of great value and worth. I think what this also means is that this is not a role that's interchangeable with the man's role. That God doesn't interchange being a helper for humanity, being a helper back with God. And so I think we can conclude as the scripture, that man doesn't have this interchangeable role as being the helper to uh, the wife. Now, men are called to serve and to die to themselves, as we looked at last week, but this primary role, this foundation for a wife is to be a helper. A woman's role as helper, I think, communicates the beautiful reality that men and women are interdependent and need one another. That's really the beauty. This is God's beautiful design that men and women have same value, but they've been gifted and have different roles. When they come together, there is a relationship that flourishes. Ancient Jewish rabbis used to point out that God did not take woman from man's head to rule over him, like the feminists say, or from man's foot to be his slave, as the chauvinists say, but from his side to be his equal. Not from his front to lead him, but from his side to complement to support, and really to fulfill a role that was needed in order to accomplish the cultural mandate. And so this normative role, the foundation for the woman is to serve, to support, and to cultivate the gifts around her. All right, so that's kind of the, the floor here, the foundation for the wife's role. Let's get a little bit more specific here and talk about the wife's job description. Okay, so think about helper there is a healthy manifestation of being a helper, and there's an unhealthy manifestation of being a helper. The unhealthy manifestation or display of being a helper is when the wife resists the husband's leadership and has this desire to exert control over her husband. Now you might be wondering, well, where are you getting that, Chris? Well, you find that in Genesis 3, As God declares the effect of sin upon the woman, he says in verse 16, Your desire, women, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, now what kind of desire is this that women have to to kind of be contrary to their husband? Well, that desire is, is even shaped by the same desire we see in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where Cain is, is filled with anger, and God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, I point that, I link these because it's almost the identical Hebrew construction here. This desire that the wife will have over the husband is the same kind of desire that sin has over Cain and over humanity And that desire is to rule over him. That desire is to exert control, to overcome, to gain the upper hand. I think what Genesis chapter 3 is describing here is the destructive danger of role reversal. One in which the wife does not follow her husband's leadership, but wants to exert control over him. And and that desire here, if you don't combat that and and put it to death leads to all kinds of dysfunction within the marriage. Very similar to Adam's role. When, When the role reversal happens and Adam is overly passive 
or, or when men are, are overly um, exerting their authority and, and they can be abusive at times. Like that's, that's the dysfunction of marriage. All right, so this is just a manifestation of, uh, of what it looks like when a helper is done in more of a sinful way. Let's look at what this looks like in a healthy way. If you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at what Paul has to say as far as the, the healthy manifestation of what it means to be a helper. All right, verses 22 through uh, 24. Paul says to wives, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, now this idea of submission, we not only see this in Ephesians 5, but we also see it in Titus 2, 5, in Colossians 3, 18, and even similar language in 1 Peter chapter 3. About a year ago, I got a call from uh, one of our neighbors who lives down the street from us, and uh, they knew I was a pastor, and uh, they were a young couple who was um, engaged, and I knew their wedding was coming up. And they call me, and they say, hey, Chris, um, you know, I know you're a pastor of a, of a non-denominational church, and they, they kept emphasizing that on the phone call, and, and hey, we'd love for you to come over because our wedding is tomorrow, and uh, we just want you to talk through the wedding ceremony. And I'm like, uh, okay, I'll be right over, you know, thinking like, do they want me to officiate this wedding tomorrow? Like, so I go over there, and, and they're, they're, they've got like kind of their wedding ceremony kind of laid out and, and just the, the agenda, and, and they share with me, like, Chris, we do not want kind of an overly religious ceremony. Right? I think they came from like a Catholic background. They've got this Catholic priest who's coming in to do the ceremony. And they're like, we know you're a non-dominational pastor, so would you just share with us what you do in a wedding ceremony? And I'm like, okay, like I've got my notes here. And, and so I start with the gospel. I always start with the gospel and doing a wedding ceremony, talk about Jesus. And, and they're listening very intently. They're asking questions. And they stop me and they say, man, this is really good, but why are you talking about the gospel and marriage here? Like what's the, what's the connection there? And they're just kind of throwing me a softball. I just, you know, knock out of the park here and just talk about the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and what that means for marriage. And, and they're just like leaning into this, just asking really good questions. And then they say, okay, that's great, but what else do you talk about? And, and so I take them to Ephesians 5. And, and I say, well, this is the role of the husband, and then this is the role of the wife. And, and like, oh, man, this is, this is really good stuff. Like, this is awesome. Like, do you mind if we just copy all of this and our priest just uses it for the ceremony tomorrow? And I was like, I think so. I think that's okay. Um, that's fine. And then the woman says, well, yeah, this, everything's great here, but let, let's take out the piece about submission. Like, I, I don't like that. That's not really us. Like, can we just, are you okay if we just leave that out? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing the ceremony. Like, whatever you guys want to do. Like, this is up to you guys tomorrow. And, and I thought that was so interesting. Like, they were all in about the gospel, about the, 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 the role of the husband. You get to the wife, and, and there's a little bit of, of discomfort when you talk about the S word, when you talk about submission. And it, it was interesting because I was thinking about that as I was thinking about Ephesians 5, talking about submission here today. And I, I wonder if even if our church did an anonymous poll uh, among the women here, right? Totally anonymous. And the question is, would you remove the word submission from the Bible 
if God let you, if it was up to you, would you remove this word or at least change it out with something that's more comfortable? I wonder if the majority of the women here would say, yes, please, like immediately. Like, I, I don't like that word. Like, th- there's so much history to that word, maybe in your own life personally. Let's just remove it, right? Th- there's, there's so much baggage when you think about the word submission. It's almost like this, this junk drawer term that you just throw in whatever idea you want, whatever you see in culture or maybe an unhealthy manifestation of submission. And that's kind of what we tend to think about submission, and we think it means always to be uh, oppressive or abusive or tyranny or, or whatever the case may be. And so this morning, like I, I know this word like is just a firecracker of a word. And yet it's, it's in the Bible. And it's a really important aspect of what it means to be a biblical woman in the context of marriage. And so I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about what it is, what it practically looks like. But first, maybe this will be helpful, let's talk about what it's not, okay? Let's maybe address five things that submission is not, okay? And hopefully this is a little bit disarming here. All right, number one, submission does not mean that women are inferior. Women are inferior. You know, we've discussed this almost every single week and throughout this sermon series, and I just wanted to emphasize this yet again, that women are not created less than men, Okay, this whole idea that, okay, Adam was created first, that means that he's superior over women, is not a biblical um, belief. That women and men are equal in dignity and worth and value. They just play different roles in the context uh, of, of life and in marriage. Look, if submission means inferiority, then we have bigger problems than just marriage. We have Trinitarian issues. Because we see Jesus submitting to the Father time and time again throughout the Gospels, and, and yet we know that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are equal. So this doesn't mean that women are inferior. Number two, does it mean that women are to submit to all men in all areas at all times? Peter and Paul, they're both writing and they're addressing this to wives, and they're saying to submit, not to all men, but to submit to your husband. Okay, so when you think about submission, this is not to all men in your life or in the community. It's directly to your own husband. I don't believe that this applies to the workplace, that when you think about um, complementarianism, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we see that uh, really in the context of marriage and in the church, but we don't see it in uh, the workplace there. And so for, um, for the, the wives here, you are to submit only to your husband. Furthermore, I just want to be clear about this as well. This does not call for an unconditional submission. Okay, there are parameters that the scriptures provide about what you are to submit to and what you are not to submit to. Wives, you are not to submit to your husbands when your husband is leading you in a way that's contrary to scripture, when they're leading you into sin or something against the word of God. That your submission to your husband should not take the place of you submitting to Jesus Christ, him being Lord and King of your life. Wives, this does not mean that you submit to abuse. This is not something that that you should follow your husband in. Number three here, another uh, thing that submission is not, is that it's not dependent on your husband's strengths. I hear from time to time from different women that, well, my husband's not a spiritual leader, not a strong leader, so 
I don't know what it means to follow him. I don't know what it means to, to submit to him. God, I'm not really submitting to anything. He's not leading well. And look, no doubt that is a difficult place to live. Um, just to state the obvious here in this verse, Peter is not saying to submit when he is sufficiently leading you. Right? In fact, I would say if you wait to submit to your husband only when he leads you well, he may never actually get there. Like in some cases, wives, I think the Lord might use your godly submission to your husband in order to embolden and to strengthen your husband's leadership, right? So this is not dependent on, on yeah, he's leading well here. I'm going to follow him there. Or he's strong there. I'm going to follow him there. No, the Bible says to submit to him even in his weakness and even as he's trying to kind of figure this whole thing out. Number four, Submission does not mean to give up independent thinking, all right? Remember, Paul and Peter, they're writing this, and they're addressing the wives here, and and they're assuming that the wives are understanding this, that they're pondering this, they're wrestling with this, they're trying to make sense of what this looks like in the context of their marriage. And so don't think that submission means to check your brain and your gifts at the door of marriage, this does not mean to, to turn off your brain. It doesn't mean that, that you think 100% identical to your husband in, in all things. In fact, I think God has gifted you with strengths and abilities and w- even within your intellect in ways that he hasn't gifted your husband. And so for you to, to not use your intellect, to not use your skills, is not only a misapplication of headship and submission, but it will also diminish your ability to display the gospel most beautifully. I think there's a healthy way of using your gifts in an unhealthy way, which leads to the next one here. The fifth thing here is that submission doesn't mean that you never disagree with your husband. Okay, wives, this does not mean that you only follow your husband when you agree with him or when you think that he's making the right decision. All right, that's not submission, that's agreement, okay? Now, Peter and Paul, they're not saying wives agree with your husband. They're saying wives submit to your husband. Submission actually implies that there will be some disagreement as you make decisions together. Look, if you've been married for 30 seconds, you know that marriage is about disagreements, right? Like, like there's so much conflict and, and differences and things that you're trying to make decisions about. And look, those aren't bad. Like disagreements and conflict and and differences, like those are not bad things. That actually is the space by which God transforms us the most. It just depends on how you handle that. And I think there are two extremes you want to avoid. Husbands, we looked at this last week. Husbands, you want to avoid bullying your your wife, but you also want to avoid being overly passive with your wife. Wives, you want to avoid that Genesis 3.16 desire to exert control over your husband, but you also want to avoid being a walking mat with your husband. I think that there's this middle space, this middle ground, where trans- transformation can take place as the husband is, is leading sacrificially and dying to himself, dying to his preferences, loving his wife, leading his wife well, and the wife is submitting and having this godly disposition to yielding to her husband's um, leadership. So maybe I'd put some language to this. Um, wives, maybe it's stating the obvious, but it probably needs to be said. 
Wives, as you guys are, are making decisions with your husband and your husband makes a decision that you don't agree with, it's probably not the most godly thing to say to him, I, I think you're making a dumb decision here. Like, I, I think that this is the wrong to say, I don't agree with this, but I know you're the leader of the home, and I need to submit, so let's go ahead and make this decision, but I'm going to be the first one to throw this in your face when this blows up, right? Like, that's probably not the best response. Like, a, a more godly response, I think, is to say to your husband, look, husband, I love when you lead our home. I love when you take initiative, but look, you know I don't see eye to eye with, with this decision, like, do you mind if we take a day or two and just pray about this some more, maybe research some more, maybe get maybe some outside counsel to speak into this and then make a final decision? And whatever decision is made, I'm going to respect your leadership and we're going to move forward on the same page. Like, I think that's probably a better kind of response to even help um, embolden his leadership even within the marriage. Remember my mentor told me years ago that marriage is, is like a dance, and look, I, I'm not a very good dancer. Like, you do not want me on the dance floor at all. But one thing I do know about dancing is that uh, when you're dancing with somebody else, someone has to lead, right? You, you can't just have these two people who just kind of do whatever dance move they want, and, it, and it's in sync, right? You're probably going to run into each other. The dance will be over. Like, you want movements that have harmony, that complement each other, where someone is leading, and I think that the Bible lays out that he's called the man to be the lead in the dance of marriage. And we talked about this last week, that this doesn't mean that husbands, we make decisions independent of our wives. They have strengths and gifts that we need to sometimes lean on and depend upon as we make decisions together. Okay, so that's a couple of things of what submission is not now, let's, let's take this a step further here. Remember, we're trying to put things in the box of biblical womanhood in marriage. Let's try to define submission. Let's talk about what this looks like practically. Now, before we do, I just I want to remind us just to be careful that we do not confuse uh, cultural expressions with timeless biblical principles, okay? And we're, we're supposed to do that with all commands in Scripture, but in particular, it's really easy to do that in the context of marriage, like sometimes what I'll hear people say is, okay, submission means that women should never work outside the home, right? I'm thinking, well, like what about Proverbs 31? Or sometimes I'll hear, okay, this means, submission means that women are to cook and clean and iron the clothes. Man, you, you can mow, mow the grass and, and work. And I'm thinking, well, where do we get that in these verses here? Like I, I just want to kind of encourage us, maybe challenge us a little bit that we have biblical principles here about the role of the wife and the role of the husband, but they will look different in every marriage. We've got some foundational principles, but because there are so many variables in this room, so many different personalities, different backgrounds, different strengths, different weaknesses, different health issues, different set of circumstances, the way headship and helper what that looks like in the context of your marriage might look different than the marriage that's sitting next to you, right? And furthermore, we, we just don't have a whole lot of specifics in the Bible about what this looks like, okay? So we need to use wisdom. We, we need to be able to contextualize these principles of what this actually looks like. And I think we need to start with defining the S word, all right? Now, this word, submission, what it means in the Greek here, means to arrange under to obey, or to follow. Okay, it, it carries the idea of joyfully 
and willingly following another's leadership. Another pastor defined it this way. I thought it was really helpful. It said that submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Okay, it's the cheerful disposition, I would say, to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. Okay, so that's kind of the definition. And there, there is an attitude, there's like a, a posture that, that comes with, with this definition as far as it's fleshed out between a wife and a husband. I think the, the attitude a wife should have towards her husband is to say, look, husband, I love when you lead. Like, it's, it's best that you lead. I love when you take initiative. I love when you take ownership and responsibility. It's not good when you're passive. It's not for the benefit of the family when, when I have to lead the family. So there's this cheerfulness, this willingness for the husband to step into that role. And so that's a little bit of submission. Now, part of me just wants to kind of close the Bible and pray and be like, all right, have a good week. Like, we're going to move on here, right? That'd be the easy thing to do. Uh, but I know that probably wouldn't be as helpful. I, I know that many of us might be still struggling with, with this idea of submission and everything against, uh, with our culture is against that. And so let me just spend the next couple of minutes providing some encouragement um, to our wives, the wives in this room about submission, if you're really kind of struggling with this. Here's some encouragement. We're going to get a little bit specific here, so bear with me. Um, number one here, if you're struggling with this, just encourage you to cultivate a submissive disposition towards your husband through gospel application in your heart. All right, this is, this is where it starts, and this is where it oftentimes um, becomes dysfunction when we miss this. I think what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, is he is laying out for us the way to cultivate a godly, submissive disposition in the heart of the wife by pursuing spiritual and inward strength in Jesus. All right, this is what Peter says here. He says, do not let your, he's talking about wives, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I think what Peter is saying here to the wives is the way to cultivate this type of disposition is to make your primary and your highest priority your relationship with God. To grow in your godliness, to grow in, in your ability to take God's word and apply that to the deep places of your heart, to make sure that your soul is healthy, that is your first priority above caring for your husband and caring for your kids. Like that takes priority over what you look like on the external. And if we really believe that, that should shape how much time and energy you spend on the internal, on the inward person, and your relationship with God. And look, I know this is really countercultural. I know this is, this is hard because we're swimming in the current around us that prioritizes the external way over and beyond the, the inward person. Right? You just go on social media, and you are exposed to, to this, this cultural trap of comparison, Right, like people, as they're posting on social media, like they're always putting their best foot forward. Tends to be things that highlight the external of a person. 
And it's so easy to get on there and, and to see what other people are like and to fall in this vicious trap, this vicious cycle of comparison when we know people are only posting the best parts about their life. You know, you get on there, wives, and you see another mom with three kids, and it's 7.13 in the morning, and, and they're showered, they got makeup on, they're, they're dressed, and their kids are dressed, and they're sipping coffee, and you're thinking to yourself, man, like, I, I'm still in my PJs. Like, my kids are still in their dirty diaper from, from the night. Like, I'm just still waking up. And, and it's, it's easy to kind of think of, like, oh, that's the standard there. And that can so easily shape your priorities throughout the day where you value the external over the internal. I think furthermore, we live in a culture that preaches autonomy. Like our culture around us says, complete freedom is what you want. Like we see this in the workplace. Like the, the, the idea of success in the workplace is having nobody above you. Like you are your own boss. No one is managing you. No one's telling you what to do, right? And that sense of autonomy can trickle into our marriages and negatively impact what we think submission is all about. And so, wise, let me just encourage you, if you struggle with this, run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run to the beauty of Jesus, not only as your example to imitate, but as the key that unlocks the power to actually live this out in your life. Like, remember, remember what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember as he's, you know, the night before he was crucified, he, he is wrestling with himself. He's wrestling with, with this command from the Father to go to the cross. He's wrestling with it so much that he's sweating drops of blood, and he's wrestling with submission there. He says to the Father, I want this cup to pass from me. Like, I, I don't want to submit to this. And I think through the wrestling, this, this godly submissive dispos disposition that we see in the Son of God is he gets to that point where he says, not my will, but your will be done. Look, wives, can I just encourage you to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, when you're struggling with this idea of submission as a way to imitate the way of your Savior. Wives, I, I want to challenge you to, to actively and specifically pray for those areas in your marriage where it is a challenge to submit to your husband. Like, you need to wage war against that desire, that Genesis 3.16 desire to want to exert control over your husband, and you need to wage war against that by praying, to follow the example of Jesus in the garden by praying that God would do a work in your heart because the beginning of submission, it all starts with godliness. Another point of encouragement I want to leave you with this morning, wives, is to also create a leadership vacuum for your husband to step into. Please hear me say this as clear as I can. This is definitely not in all cases, but in some cases, husbands are not leading because the wife is. All right, it's not in all cases. Sometimes the, the husband's just sinful and lazy, right? But in some cases, wives are leading because they're great leaders and they're leading, and so the husband is more passive. So wives, look, you might be a strong driven leader. You might have a career, maybe a successful career, but I think that the question that should govern what you do and how you use your leadership skills should be this. How can I help my family and my husband flourish best? 
Like that question should govern exactly what you choose to do and what you partake in, not what's best for me as an individual. And that might mean that you keep doing what you're doing. You keep working, keep using your leadership skills in certain areas, but maybe in some seasons it might mean that you stop doing certain things. Like, wife, do you, do you feel overcommitted? Do you feel like there are too many plates spinning in your life that, that's causing you to kind of squeeze out your primary role to be a helper suitable for your husband? Look, it, it's not a bad thing to, to go through seasons and to stop and, and just to evaluate, should, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Is that helping our family and my husband flourish in the role that God has given me? Maybe I need to say no to that. And maybe there are aspects of your marriage where you need to say to your husband, I need you to lead in this. And just to take a step back and, and create this void for your husband to, to play that part. I think that submission is, it creates this leadership vacuum that serves as an invitation. It says, husband, you lead, like, you're called to this. And to watch your husband kind of flourish in that role, and that will also help you submit and help. Another encouragement for you wives this morning is to be an expert in your husband's strengths, not just weaknesses, like, I think that most men are, are in tune with their own failures, their, or, their own shortcomings. That's usually not the problem. Now, sometimes husbands have blind spots, and they think that they're the best things in sliced bread, and, and, and they can, you know, they're blind to their own weaknesses. And so, wives, you might need to sometimes play the role of the Holy Spirit in a very loving way and point out those things along the way. But what husbands, I think, need most of the time are our wives who are our best encouragers, who are consistently and specifically affirming the grace of God they see in our lives. Likewise, I think that for you to encourage your husband consistently will also help cultivate respect, as we see in Ephesians 5.33, that you're called to respect your husband. And wives, I just want to share a, a secret with you from, from the pulpit here, and you might already know this, you probably do, but your husband, most of the husbands, I shouldn't say every husband, but most of the husbands are wrestling with the question, do I have what it takes? Can I actually fulfill this role? That, that your husband, because he's aware of his own failures and weaknesses, he might be doubting if he can step into this massive role to love you in the same way that Christ loves the church. And so I think that the Lord wants to use the wives in order to sharpen our leadership and to embolden our leadership through consistent ways of encouragement. That wives just encourage you to talk positively about your husband out in public with your friends, with family members, with, the, with other people. Talk positively about your husband in front of your kids. It's a way to, to kind of cultivate that respect in your marriage. And then the last thing, just to point out, just, just to encourage you again, is to Discover specific ways you can support your husband by using your gifts. All right, wife, your role is, is not just to be this cheerleader, like as if you're off the court, off the field, watching your husband. No, biblically, you're, you're alongside him on the court, on the field, in this game of marriage. You're right beside him. And so you have gifts and strengths that your husband desperately needs in order for your marriage to flourish. 
And, and you will flourish best when you guys use your gifts in a complementary way. And, and look, don't, don't believe the lie that I know culture's spewing at us, that submission will undercut your gifts and your strengths. Like, that's what the culture wants us to believe about submission, when I think just the opposite is true. I think submission will actually maximize your gifts and your strengths because it will put your gifts in its proper order. You will start to use your gifts in the space, in the lane that God has given you under your husband's leadership and you're face-to-face with your own limitations. And so, why? Figure out where your husband is weak. Probably won't be hard for you. But figure out where he struggles and to use your strengths and use your gifts to come around him so that you both can flourish. Look, I, I know this is, a hard, this is a hard topic to preach on. It's a hard topic to even flesh out in your own marriage. And, and so, wife, if you're still kind of processing, what does this look like here? What should I do in this, in this, in this example? I want to encourage you to find a godly seasoned saint who, who's years down the road from you and just to initiate and say, hey, can you help me figure out what this looks like in my marriage? Like, if you just look around after the service, we have seasoned saints around us, especially in first service, who would love to pour into you. They would love to, kind of, hey, here's what I did. And just to create a safe place for you to ask some honest questions, for you to, for you to just, you know, hey, I, I'm really struggling with this. I don't know what this looks like. This doesn't feel like submission here, or whatever the case may be. And just to have someone else walk alongside you to be able to parse this out. Like this is why we have that Titus 2 discipleship ministry for women where the older pour into the, the younger because this is so hard to do in our culture. I just want to encourage you to take that next step and, and, to, and to find somebody to, to speak into that area of your life. Well, we've uh, said a lot today. Um, we've said a lot over the course of, of this sermon series and I really felt like I could have preached this sermon series in eight messages, not four. And so I just have a couple minutes left, so hang in with me. I wanted to just leave us uh, with just a couple of takeaways as it relates to marriage. Okay, we talked about husbands last week, talking about uh, wives today. I want to kind of put this together and and just to give you three quick takeaways that you can use as maybe, uh, you know, topics of conversation with your spouse. Singles, I think this will be helpful for you to think through as as you process what marriage is even all about and to use this as fodder for more conversation. Here's takeaway number one for marriage, is that your marriage is shaped by moments, okay? Your marriage is not shaped primarily by these big, momentous experiences or events. And for those of you who have been married for decades, you know that you probably only have like five to ten of those big moments or experiences. But the health of your marriage, I think, is determined by the habits that you form. It's these hundreds of moments every single day, these opportunities where you can die to self, where you can respond with kindness, where you can fulfill your role of encouragement and leading that will mold and shape your spouse in a much bigger way than some of those, uh, those big moments or experiences. So take the long view here in marriage Marriage is not a sprint, but a marathon, and to develop those godly habits along the way. Number two here is that your marriage is meant to reveal your emptiness, not to fill it. All right, now, have you guys ever driven on those old bridges before, and you see those warning signs? It says, warning, this bridge will not support over two tons. 
right? That's just to tell us, hey, your car can be driven over this bridge, but don't drive your Mack truck. This thing's going to collapse, right? You know what I think we need to do in our marriages? I think we need to put a sign on our spouse that says, I will not support the weight of your soul. Like, I, I will not, I've not been created to fulfill your deepest needs. Now, you might be able to bless and encourage your spouse, but, but there, are, there are needs at the soul level that your spouse was not created to meet. Only Jesus can. I love how Gary Thomas puts this. He says that marriage doesn't solve emptiness. It actually exposes it. That if someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you either. Like issues like loneliness and insecurity and unhappiness were never meant to be cured by another human being. And so be careful about the expectations that you put on your spouse that they were never meant to carry. Like your spouse is not your savior. Jesus Christ is. And I think having these misplaced expectations will will eventually crush your spouse and will actually leave you dissatisfied and you'll be searching to find satisfaction elsewhere. Number three here is that your marriage is meant to be a safe place for deep transformation. Okay, so not only were you not designed to meet the soul needs of another, you were meant to, to reveal it so Jesus can fill it. Well, in the context of marriage is the safest place for you to, to be exposed in all of your sin in all of your weaknesses where your spouse has made a covenant with you, I'm not leaving. I'm not walking away from this. Even with all of your mess, we are in this together forever. And I think in that safe environment, you can actually be fully exposed. And look, that, that's actually where transformation happens. Transformation only happens when there's exposure, when your, when your weaknesses are revealed. And so look, we all have selfish tendencies. We all have issues that we're wrestling with. And I think that those are, are actually sometimes gifts that the Lord gives us because they're reminders of our own deep need for grace. Those differences and conflict and, and all of those issues in marriage are actual opportunities for you to, to press into the grace that God has given you and to help your spouse be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you to not, not to hide things from your spouse, not to pretend uh, that, that you have it all together, but to let down even your mask within marriage and to say, man, I'm really struggling with this. I need your help with this. Chances are they probably already know that. And to invite them into that space so you can be transformed into the image of Jesus. But God's beautiful design, I think, is best on display as the gospel is reenacted through the husband and through the wife. As the husband loves and leads his wife like Christ leads and loves the church, as the wife submits to her husband, as the church submits to Christ, I think that is when our marriages flourish as God has intended. And it actually becomes a really effective evangelistic tool to a watching world around us. Well, we hope that God continues to stir that within our own hearts. I just want to pray as we close this morning. And as we pray, I want to do what we did last week. And, um, you know, last week we prayed over our husbands. And this morning, I just want us to, to spend some time praying over our wives. That husband, if you're sitting near your wife, hopefully you are, uh, that you can put your arm around her 
and just spend the next 60 seconds, maybe the next two minutes, just kind of praying over your wife to, to use some of the things that we've talked about and just to pray some of these into the soul uh, of your spouse. And then we'll close with a word uh, of benediction. So let's pray. Let's pray as we close. God, thank you for, Lord, what you've taught us throughout this sermon series. Lord, thank you for the clarity that you've provided through your word. Thank you that we can trust your word as a light into our path. Lord, thank you that, Lord, in the midst of, of really hard things in our relationships, Lord, that you use those to transform us. Lord, thank you that we do have disagreements, that we do have uh, components in our, in our marriages that are challenging because that reminds us of our own need for grace. That reminds us that marriage exists for us to be transformed, not for our comfort. So God, I pray that you would continue to do a work in the marriages of this church. Lord, you extend grace where grace is needed. Would you bring full reconciliation where that's also needed? And God, I pray that our marriages would better display the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name.